0: Walt Disney, we used to go to his house and ride this thing called the Carolwood Express. He lived on a street called Carolwood. It was a miniature steam train. His house was five acres, and he built this train that went around his whole property and went over gorges and had bridges and all that stuff, all in miniature, but it was a real steam train. he was the conductor. He'd come and say, oh, you guys are having fun, and let's go on a ride. He, you know, he was like a big kid himself. This is the kind of stuff that would happen all the time.
1: In today's Star Powered episode, we get the chance to sit down with the remarkably accomplished and charismatic Rich Carell. He's a successful sitcom creator and director, TV actor, writer, producer, author, and rare collector whose 2,900 piece private collection of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror film memorabilia is famed as the largest in the world and the only of its kind. Join us as Rich shares exclusive and almost unbelievable stories from his charmed childhood, growing up next door to the Playboy Mansion and having neighbors and close friends such as Walt Disney, Hugh Hefner, Judy Garland, Humphrey Bogart, Carol Burnett, Fred Astaire, and Jerry Lewis, just to name a few. Rich takes us on a journey from his start co-starring in Leave It to Beaver to eventually directing his 719th episode of television. He's directed and produced some of the most well-known sitcoms in history, including Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Full House, Family Matters, Married with Children, and the show that he created with Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana. And he doesn't have plans of stopping anytime soon. Tune in for a wild ride as we cover everything from his crippling fear of needles to throwing epic 8,000-person Halloween parties and his passionate commitment to preserving history. All right. Well, I've got uh, the pleasure of having Rich Carell in the studio. Thank you for coming down here. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. And so when I walked in to the studio, I noticed that it looks like a a horror scene from uh, like a movie, like a sci-fi movie or something. And and I imagine that these aren't things that you just go to Walmart and purchase. No, no,
0: no, no. (laughs) I spend my whole career in comedy, but my hobby has been collecting science fiction, fantasy and horror film memorabilia. So, this has now turned into the biggest collection in the world. Huh. And when I talked to your folks about coming down, I just said, do you want me to bring some stuff? And they went, yeah, sure. Uh, So, this was just stuff that was laying around the house. Um, And I don't don't live in the the Adams Family house. I live in a completely normal house. (laughs) (laughs) But collectors in auction houses approach me like three times a week Uh because I collect so much stuff. So, I had some things here I thought you might think are fun uh, Uh, and recognize.
1: Of course. Well, for those that are just tuning in from the audio-only version, there's about six or seven pieces here. Why don't we kind of go through And It looks like they're guest on the uh, podcast episode. I'm going to share my mic with this guy right here. So let's start with him. Who okay, the
0: first guy you're looking at is Bela Lugosi. That's how he appeared in 1931 when Dracula came out okay. in February 31. That's made off his life cast, so that's as close to his real head as you're ever going to find. And I have guys put these things together for me to do punch, tear, acrylic teeth, glass eyes. So that's really Lugosi's head as he was in Dracula, which was his most famous role. The guy next to him is Robert Englund, who, appearing as Freddy Krueger, and that head's from Freddy 3. Now, Robert Englund was a Shakespearean actor who, a lot of people think he was British, he wasn't, he's an American, but he was a Shakespearean actor who happened to take over this one part as Freddy Krueger. And then in the 80s, those movies, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, took off. Yeah. So he became like the Boris Karloff of the 80s and early 90s, and he's the nicest nicest guy. Huh. Most of the villains were always really nice guys. It's
1: usually but he was way. super
0: nice. I directed him in a show called Married Married with Children, and he played the devil, huh. and he was hilarious. <laughs> but he was like the nicest guy. Great to my son. And This is a head of Michelle Pfeiffer. One of these other things is a head of Michelle Pfeiffer from Batman Returns. Uh, that's 1992, and she's wearing her original Catwoman cowl. Okay, they made a number of these, and Various stages of deterioration. This is one of the later ones when it's starting to fall apart. But but I mean they did that on purpose. Huh. But this is one of the originals. I have her whole suit, and that's on a display down in Hollywood. The coolest thing at the table is this hammer. There's this great big sledgehammer here. Uh-huh. Okay. Did you see Misery?
1: And is it a real hammer? Is it heavy? No, it's not. Okay, this, looks is, like this it. is
0: a foam head. Okay. But did you see the movie Misery of with Kathy Bates uh-huh. and James Con? Okay. Yeah. The most... The most famous scene in that is the hobbling scene where she breaks his feet. Yes. This is the sledgehammer she uses that's to break his feet. That's the exact sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I my just God. think that's so cool. It is cool. And you can well, see I get very excited about these
1: things. I'm like a little <laughs> you're kid. Like a, you're, you're like a kid oh, yeah, in an I, I adult just love it. body. It's so cool to see this. Yeah, yes. And then I
0: have a hammer sitting in front of me, which is one of Thor's hammers, one of the original screen-used hammers. This one happens to be from Dark World, which was made in uh, 2013. All of these hammers, and there's a number of them, are actually really heavy. Mm -hmm. Some of them they use to drop on pavement and actually break stuff. Hmm. And then some of them are lighter ones, but this happens to be one of the heavy ones. So this is one of his screen-used hammers. This little guy over here is a—I have another head here from—this is from a movie called Gremlins. That's
1: actually from Gremlins. Well,
0: not only that, that's the hero bad guy. That's Stripe with his mohawk haircut. That's one of Stripe's original puppet heads. From Gremlins. Wow. And I love that. And then, last but not least, certainly, is Boris Karloff's life cast and makeup as the monster from Frankenstein. That's also 1931. Karloff was a, a player who had made something like 80 movies before he got this break and yeah. played the monster. And, you know, he didn't speak, and people thought, ah, oh, you know, is this going to be any big deal? And of course, it launched his career and he became the most famous face in the history of horror movies. And there was another nice guy, great guy. Uh-huh. I got to meet him like three times. And each time he just was such a nice guy. Huh. The furthest thing from a monster you could think. I mean, he was this British gentleman that was just such a great guy. Yeah. And he liked kids. And if you knew about his movies, he would just talk to you about all. It. it was really cool. So that's some of the stuff I brought down here. A cross-section of things from the 80s, from the 30s, from uh, the 90s, and then the 2000s here. So you have a lot of stuff here.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for bringing all this stuff in. This Happy is to do it. So I love showing cool. this stuff to
0: people. Yes, it is too cool. So now you brought in
1: about six or seven pieces, right? So mm-hmm. now how big is your entire collection, would you say?
0: It's about 2,800, 2,900 pieces. 2,900 pieces. Mm-hmm. And so is most of this in your house or where do you store it? No, those? none of it's in the house, really. None. Okay. No. Um, it's stored mostly in a warehouse in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. Why Columbus, Ohio? I have to have a partner there who makes these uh, pneumatic things that walk around and jump at people and like walking with dinosaurs uh-huh. and things like that. And he and I are going to start a science fiction fantasy and horror hall of fame together. So, really? He's got a, yeah, he builds all these really cool things. And so he stores most of that stuff down there. And then I also have an exhibit right now on Hollywood Boulevard called Icons of Darkness. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, that's right down there on uh, Hollywood and Highland right now. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in there. And people come in and they say, oh my gosh, there's so much stuff. Look at all the stuff. And it's about 50% of it, really. Oh my. Yeah. So, when did that open? That opened on the 27th of September, so we'd be open for Halloween. Right before Halloween, yeah. huh? And is it going to stay open? Well, it's that's what's going to move up. It's going to move next to the Chinese theater. And then become the Hall the of Fame. The Hall of Fame, yeah. Like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, only except science fiction, fantasy, and horror movies.
1: And when do you expect that to open up to the public? Probably,
0: I'm hoping it'll open for summer. Okay. Summertime. Simmer. When the tourist
1: things really start going. So now this this is, it's obviously a, a pure passion of yours, yep. right? And I'm curious... Like, when did this passion start?
0: Well, I was always crazy about science fiction and horror movies. My favorite movie was King Kong, the 1933 yeah. one. When I saw that. I freaked out. I was probably in second or third grade. And I just figured, hey, these guys can transport me into this other world, and I got to be in this business. Uh-huh. I ended up in comedy, not yeah. making horror movies, but still, it's really the thing that kind of was the catalyst that get me in the show business. I just loved that movie. But I always loved Halloween and scary stuff. My parents thought I was crazy. They weren't into any of that at all, Mm -hmm. but I always loved wax museums and heads and masks and everything. So when I was a kid, you know, I, I collected a few Halloween masks, whatever I could afford. Yeah. But then when I started working as an actor and that's when I was eight years old, I started working as a professional actor. Okay. One of the shows that I got cast on as a regular was Leave it to Beaver. Huh. Now, you may be too young to remember. I know everybody remembers Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, right? you know, when you tell people you were in the original Leave it to Beaver cast, they go, how old is this guy? Because <laughs> that's a vintage TV show. But anyway, Jerry Mathers, who played Beeve, he and I were great friends and we loved horror movies. And here we were at Universal where they made all these movies. Yeah. So we kept bugging our makeup men, you know, I was like, can you take us to the makeup lab? Take us to the makeup lab. Come on, come on. And you're like a nine-year-old kid at this point. Oh, yeah. Nine, ten, something Uh like that. So they finally took us up to the lab. And of course, you know, we were in heaven. We saw these life casts and heads from the movies. But the thing that we noticed, especially me, was they were throwing all this stuff in the trash. In those days, no one cared about preserving this old stuff. It just, you know, they made those things to be used in a movie, maybe good for two or three months. And then they would put it on a shelf and let the stuff deteriorate. I saw them throw the land suit from Creature from the Black Lagoon. Now, that's a 3D movie that Universal made in 1954. Mm-hmm. They threw that suit in the trash just because they just went, nah, it's taking up space and it's kind of beginning to fall apart. Today at auction, that's worth about a million six.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, like they were doing this before of a thing called eBay, right? <laughs> oh, no, yeah. No, no you one ever heard of any
0: of that. <laughs> but they threw that in the trash. If you fished it out of the trash, you would have been a millionaire. Of course. Or like that. But anyway... I saw a head in the trash from a movie called uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay. And it was like a Mr. Hyde head, a half mask, a foam half mask. Uh Karloff played Jekyll and Hyde. So I knew what it was. And I said to this guy, I don't know, some guy standing behind the counter. I said, hey, can I take that? It's a little kid. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's in the trash you know, before someone threw coffee on it or something. Of course. And that's what started. I still have that, by the way. That was your first piece. That's the first piece. That's what started all the movie collecting. And, you know, as a kid, there wasn't much you could do. I was a very honest guy. I wasn't going to run through the makeup labs and take stuff. I mean, I can tell you stories about stuff that we saw Uh that I wish I had had my hands on. Yeah. Now. right? Oh, just unbelievable. Uh But I started collecting and, you know, it just turned into this hobby and, And it kind of got fun. And then I showed more stuff to my friends. And, oh, it's really cool. And you have this. Then it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when I started to do more work and I could actually afford things, I started buying stuff from makeup effects guys and then auctions. These auction houses started auctioning all this stuff. So it's, it's it's really been fun. And it's also cool because there's a preservation aspect to it. Of course. Because a lot of this stuff would have been junked. And now somebody took it and... I have a whole crew of people that'll refurbish stuff for me and everything. Uh-huh. And so I'm preserving a lot of it. and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, people come along and they see this stuff and they like freak out. Because, you know, people remember where they where they were when they saw The Exorcist. And, yeah. And they saw Batman and all that stuff. So I'm yeah. just having a blast doing it. It's, it's really cool. But I've been doing it for years and years and years now. So it's this huge collection of stuff.
1: I mean, this is part of, like, our culture here, right? And I guess my question to you, though, is you've got so much of this, but none of this stuff could really be replaced, right? So, like, how does that work? Like, do you insure this stuff? Like,
0: Everything's insured. It's insured, yeah. 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 But, you know, it's funny, um, Jason, it, with a lot of these movies, they make more than one piece. Like Freddy Heads, they made nine Freddy movies then they made Freddy versus Jason. Then they made a Freddy TV series. So things like Freddy gloves and, and sweaters and hats, mm-hmm. there were just so many of them Yeah, that if you bought them when they first came out onto the auction market, they would be very, very expensive. Yeah. And the more they stayed out, the less expensive they became. Um, same with Batman and things like that. I mean, you know, when, when Warner Brothers made the movie in 89, they made 11 of those suits. Hmm. You know, four of them were just for the stunt team. So they made a whole bunch of these suits. Some were production made, some were screen used. But after a while, the more of them that circulate, the, the, I mean, a collection like this can appreciate or depreciate. It depends. It depends on what the current climate is and depends on what people will pay for it.
1: So what would you say is like uh, one of the most fascinating uh, pieces that you got that you had to kind of go on a crazy bidding war for?
0: When you don't care what it's going to cost and uh-huh. you're competing with people like Paul Allen. Okay. That can be a big problem. <laughs> a big Because pro- he, he was a big collector too. Yeah. I have the muzzle mask <laughs> they take Lecter off the plane with in Silence of the Lambs. Okay. Um, I have uh-huh. the Queen Alien from Aliens. I have the original suit, the original Alien suit from the first movie. Um, I, ha- I mean, I've got a lot of, I mean, people ask me, I mean, I've got the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. Mostly. Wow. The full okay. size You do. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh-huh. pretty cool. And so people love to see that stuff. Like the T-Rex head where it comes down and tries to take the kids out of the car. And yeah. It, I've got that. It's, it's on Hollywood Boulevard. Wow. You can see it down there. There's things that I really, really wanted. In most cases, the stuff I really wanted, I was able to get. I mean, right now, the only dinosaur that's ever been up for auction that I don't have is the spitter from Jurassic Park. Okay. That was sold at a pretty good price, but I had, I had purchased so many of the dinosaurs, I was like running out of money. So who's selling these things? Is it the actual movie production company? Well, it, like in the case of the dinosaurs, that stuff was built by Stan Winston. Yeah. And the Stan Winston company.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And then he had a seven-year license to be able to hold on to it. And then they were allowed to sell his personal copies of the stuff, even though they were screen used. I see. And then they went into what's called a public forum, which is an auction, which makes everything you buy legal. Yeah. So if you buy something at an auction, then you can display it to the public for money if it's sold at an auction because it's a public forum.
1: Now, how many collectors are there that's kind of at your level, would you say? Is there like uh, five people that, you know, come to mind that are kind of have a big collection like you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Five or six of them, and then there's a lot more people that collect, but not at the same level. And then there's people who just collect Jaws, just collect Harry Potter, just collect Aliens. You know, it's that kind of thing, too. And is any of your pieces ever for sale? No. I've mm-hmm. never traded or sold a piece in 55 years. Interesting. Not once. Not, so, no, anything that goes to me. And this is one of the reasons I think the effects guys liked me is because they knew their stuff wasn't going to end up on eBay or something.
1: Huh. Do museums contact you? All the time. I'd
0: imagine, right? The the new Academy Museum, my wife and I are benefactors of that. Uh So we were there from the beginning and they, I mean, actually donated Harold Lloyd's makeup kit. Harold Lloyd was a very, very famous silent movie comedian, Uh but that's again, all comedy. Uh They came over to the house (laughs) to pick up the makeup kit and they saw some of this stuff. And they said, what, you know, what is this? You know, uh-huh. we have a theater and there was like 27 effects heads in there. <laughs> and they, I said, oh, this is other, the other stuff I collect. And they said, oh, well, would you donate that? And I went, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, I've got other plans for it. Cause I'm going to do my own, but I like the Academy and we work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, that's the only other museum that I know of. It's, you know, what's really strange is in the history of the movies, And that history started around 1895. Yeah. That's when movies were kind of like invented and people thought they were some novelty. By 1903, 1904, people were going to Nickelodeons. Yeah. In the history of the movies, the single most successful continuing genre has always been science fiction and horror. Mm -hmm. It's never not made money. It's never gone out of style. It's always been this mainstay for the business. And nobody has ever paid tribute to any of that stuff. Nobody. No one's ever had... This size of collection, and no one's ever had like a Hall of Fame or a place to pay tribute to these movies. Yeah, so that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I'm I see. trying to build this place that does that. Interesting. So it's a Hollywood thing from a guy who's been kind of entrenched in Hollywood, even though my life was about comedy.
1: Yeah. So what satisfies you? You you you've invested a lot of time, money, resources to building this collection. Like, like, does it really kind of like? make you feel whole if somebody goes to Hollywood Boulevard, walks in and is like blown away by one of your pieces. Is that kind of what drives you or what?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's really fun if you can share it. Yeah, You know, you like to share your passion with other people. Uh-huh. So I think that's really fun. Yeah. Um, and again, I like it when people go, oh my gosh, I remember where I was when I saw this and mm-hmm. this is great. But then there's people who come to it, like for instance, Stan Winston passed away, you know, 13 years ago and his son is a good friend of mine and his son came in to see this exhibit and it actually made him misty oh, because wow. it was a tribute to his dad. Yeah. There was so much Stan Winston stuff. There it is. And that means something too. The mm-hmm. preservation aspect of it and the fact that, you know, I believe that Hollywood should be tr- paying tribute to my favorite genre of stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of that.
1: You're preserving history. Yeah,
0: so that, I really like that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's part of it that's really fulfilling
1: i i love that
0: so it's it's interesting so i lived in i
1: grew up in new york yep right and then we moved to uh l.a as a family we didn't i didn't my family wasn't raised in new york we moved all over the place we what lived year in atlanta in LA. what year in l.a we moved here in 2015. Oh, okay so right? you're kind of newbies. we're, we're kind of really really new right got it and so where we ended up stationing ourselves was in toluca lake yeah right and then halloween came And you know, as well as I do, what Halloween means if you're in Toluca Lake.
0: (laughs) I was in Toluca Lake in 1969, 70, 71, 72, and 73. And we put on one of the biggest Halloween shows you could imagine, right on the corner of Toluca Lake Avenue and Mariota. Interesting. And we did a thing on a guy's roof where we did a whole stage show. But it was very, very elaborate. Halloween, to me, has always been the best day of the year. And I now, at our house... It's this really famous, we have like 8,000 people show up. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We do. Th- I mean, it's crazy. The whole place is decorated from the roof to every window <laughs> to stuff in the French doors. And we actually designed the front of my house for Halloween. Do you? Well, yeah. that's
1: that's what I'm saying. So like when I went, we went trick-or-treating, not realizing like what this is like. And so we went to this area called Toluca Lake Estates where they like literally close it down. And there's thousands of people yeah, just walking so around, cool. right? And I'm just like, what is happening right now? Like, people go out, oh, they got boats. So I'd imagine, like, that's kind of what you've been living here. Well, as I said, yeah. we used to do it in uh-huh. Toluca Lake. You yeah. know? I mean,
0: Toluca Lake was a huge Halloween deal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we've been living. We've been like, it's uh, it's such a big deal that, the, and, and by the way, what's funny is some of the neighbors, they love it. Uh-huh. And then some of the neighbors are like, uh-oh, what, not, not this to guy again. No, we're not going to do this again, are we? Because their tree lawns get trampled and everything uh-huh. else. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's just been, it's really cool. Tuluka Lake's the best. That's a great place. It be. is the best, mm-hmm. right?
1: And I think, uh, you know, LA is probably one of the few places where you have Halloween stores, like in Burbank, that's open like all year round too. Yeah, right? that's, well, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: The the, the uh, Halloween Town. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, friends of mine run that place. Do they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Of course. You know, of course, Yeah, yeah. But you're right. Yeah, there's places that are all year round. They have Halloween, so it's cool.
1: And I want to talk about your Halloween parties. But before I do that, I want to go back, right? So was Halloween your always your favorite holiday? Yeah. As, oh, even I, as oh, a kid? Sure.
0: Yeah. yeah. As I said, my parents couldn't figure it out.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: There was something about the orange and black and the pumpkins and candles. I don't know what
1: it was. It's our family's favorite holiday,
0: too. Yeah, like my whole family. My son If you talk huge. to a lot of people over the years, you're going to find out it's a lot of people's favorite holiday. Yeah. Uh-huh. But people like to get dressed up and be somebody else. That's through. right. 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 Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, It's really cool. So, so growing, you grew up in, in Hollywood. I did. Okay. And, uh, what was that like mom and dad? Tell me a little bit more.
0: Well, my father and his partner were the two most successful radio comedians in history. Okay. They were the biggest stars in the world. They had a show called Amos and Andy. Okay. My father was Andy. Huh. Now today, this is a big taboo because it was two white guys playing black guys. Okay. They started on the air with Amos and Andy in 1928 and they were on until 1961. So for 33 years, they had the number one radio show in the country. Wow. So we lived in this neighborhood in a place called Homeby Hills. And we had this large estate, a lot of property. My father, by the way, was extremely humble, kind, really nice guy. Yeah. He should have been my grandfather because when I was born, he was 58. So I kind of never knew him as a really young guy. Yeah. But anyway, we lived in this house and around us, all of these neighbors, I mean, if you if you were a younger guy, you'd probably know a lot of them. But it was Alan Ladd, Lana Turner, okay. Judy Garland, yeah. Humphrey Bogart, and Lauren Bacall in the neighborhood. These were our direct neighbors. <laughs> like <laughs> wow. if we climbed the fence, this is whose house we'd go into. <laughs> then there was Jerry Lewis, Carol Burnett, Walt Disney, who we spent a lot of time with. Is that right? When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time with him. Yeah, really. Yeah, and then the people who founded the Bank of America. those, okay. were, those were our neighbors. Huh. And is this
1: just where, in in Beverly Hills? Yeah, this
0: was, our house was about seven doors away, but doors meaning this was big property from the Playboy Magic.
1: What was that like, right? Because now, you know, you see all these people on TV as does all of America, right? But then you get to hang out with them out of character as individuals.
0: What was that like? It was a blast. I mean, you know, I just finished a book about my life. Did you? I hope people are interested. I don't know. I am. But but the thing is about it, Jason, I was super lucky. Yeah. I was lucky to be brought up where I was brought up. I was be, I was lucky to have parents who were entrenched in Hollywood who were normal people. Yeah, And then the people around us and the people we grew up with, my brother and sisters and I, I think we, we I mean, we knew who they were, but we appreciated who they were, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you had, you know, if you had dinner with Fred Astaire or Bob Hope or... You know, you were sitting down with, I mean, I went to, I was playing football on Judy Garland's back lawn Okay. with Johnny Luft. That was her stepson. Uh, she, this is when she was married to Sid Luft and we went into the kitchen and of course everyone, you never called her Judy. She was Mrs. Luft. I mean, everybody had to be very polite. <laughs> this is the way we were raised, but she was making soup and she was just in the kitchen. So Johnny and I went in there and got ourselves some cookies or something we were eating. He got up to go do something. I don't know what he was doing. So I was down there with just Judy. And I said to her, you know, Mrs. Luft, I saw your movie last night because it, it, The Wizard of Oz had just been on TV. Yeah. By the way, the first like four times I ever saw it, I thought it was a black and white movie because nobody had color TV. Uh, I see. Nobody saw it in color. Uh
2: huh.
0: Anyway, I, I said, I saw your movie. And she said, oh, that's fine, honey. You know, I was a little kid. Yeah. And I said, hey, will you sing that song for me? Over wow. the Rainbow? <laughs> And while she was making soup and I was eating cookies in her kitchen, she sang Over the Rainbow for me. That's... Now, if you tell that to people, they even think you're out of your mind. Yeah, or, or a dream. It sounds like a dream, right? Oh, yeah, or yeah. you're making it up or uh-huh. something. But this is this is the kind of stuff that would happen all the time. Huh. I mean, Walt Disney, we used to go to his house and ride this thing called the Carolwood Express. He lived on a street called Carolwood. Okay. And it was a miniature steam train his house was five acres and he built this train that went around his whole property and went over gorges and had bridges and all this stuff and his kids and it was all in miniature, but it was a real steam train. He was the conductor. Huh. He'd come and say, Are you guys having fun and let's go on a ride. He, you know, he was like a big kid himself. Of course. We would do that all the time. And then when he cut the ribbon for Disneyland, my sister and I were like 10 feet away from him because he had, he had invited our family down to go with him. Yeah. The opening of Disneyland. Huh. I've been there on a number of occasions. So I'm how like,
1: old were you when Disneyland opened then?
0: Uh six.
1: You were six years old. And yeah. you remember that.
0: I remember it really well. Huh. Yeah. And I also remember that it was 105 and of course. And everybody was the longest line in the park was the Carnation Pavilion so people could get something to drink. And yeah, yeah I remember all that stuff. The I remember the jungle cruise. I mean, it's the same. It's it was the same as it was sixty years ago. You yeah. Know? Uh-huh. So I remember a lot of the stuff. And uh yeah. I mean, and we had a great time with him. I set up as a kid when I was like 10 or 12 years old, I set up a thing in the basement of our house, which was, again, it was a Frankenstein. I mean, I took my dad's clothes and, and stuffed them with newspapers and put some cheap mask on it and made, yeah. it, made it like a Frankenstein lab. And on Sundays, we dad would have these big parties. Like bar, He would barbecue chicken in the afternoons. People would go swimming and then they had these barbecues.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I asked Ozzie Nelson, Uh you know, from Ozzie and Harriet, Ricky Nelson's dad. And I asked him and Walt Disney if they would come into the basement and look at this thing I set up. And of course, my mom was like horrified. (laughs) Oh my God, you can't invite people into our basement. Are you out of your mind? You know, it's like, so I did it anyway. And I took them down there and showed them this thing. And Walt Disney said to me, you know, you have a little too much orange in one area and not enough light on this monster. So let me help you. Ozzy had gone upstairs, and here I was in the basement of my house with this thing I had set up. And Walt Disney and I were switching out all the lights what to get a better look. At it's like, uh, yeah, oh, how, how lucky is that? I mean, I told you I was like really lucky. Hmm, yeah, well, we just we knew everybody.
2: Yes, I, and my father, like
0: my father had his own table at Jason's this famous, famous restaurant. Yeah, and the table was between we'd go in on Sundays, and it was between Lucille Ball and Jimmy Stewart.
1: Huh. So we
0: would come in to have like dinner, and that's who's like. Sitting there talking to you. But for you, it's just normal life. It was a normal life. Just normal life. Yeah, we had to be, my mom was, our family was Catholic. Okay. So my mom was like a professional Catholic. Okay. So we were always, we went to Catholic schools. I went, the first non-Catholic school I went to was USC. I went to college. Oh, you did? And that was like not a Catholic school, but everything else was Catholic. So everybody had to be really polite and everybody (sighs) had to be, you know, dress nicely and you had to, you know, you, if you went out to dinner, you, it was, everything was in a suit and tie. And uh-huh. I can remember when they used to sell loges, tickets in theaters. And we had, if we went with our parents, like to some, like the 10 commandments or something, we had to wear a suit and tie to go to the movie. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it was a whole different time and, but it was a lot of fun. It was, it, it was a lot of fun. It,
1: it sounds sure like it, man. It was I, a wish, blast. I wish I was a fly on the wall for some of these stories that you're sharing here. So now you kind of get out of adolescence and now you become a teenager, right? Mm -hmm. And so what was life like as a teenager for you?
0: Life was great as a teenager. I always had fun. Again, I was at the Catholic schools. I went to Loyola, Uh which was an all-male school. Yeah. Uh So anytime we could be around the Catholic high school girls or anybody else, this was like a lot of fun. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Great time. But I stayed... You know, I always was directing shows or directing my own stuff. Or
1: So you, as a teenager, you kind of was already kind of knew what you wanted to do? When I was
0: nine or 10 years old, yeah, um, I knew what I wanted to do. You did? Yeah. And then when I started acting... And I it was, was it was in front of the camera or behind the camera? When I started acting, I yeah. was much more interested in what was going on behind the behind camera. Behind the camera. Okay. Know? And I didn't say, oh, I want to be a director so I can direct everybody. But I was always fascinated by the directors because they had their hands in everything yeah huh. and i like that I, I liked that responsibility and i like doing that kind of stuff um i was dating and having fun and you know and then i got into usc and that was all cinema arts that was a cinema arts major and i went to i sat in class with george lucas and john carpenter they went and, to the same school as you yeah were. but nobody knew you know that george lucas would be who, who he sure. who turned out to be huh. he gave me a ride in his porsche i had a I was driving like a stock, not very expensive, like a Chevy three ninety six yeah, and he said, "Oh, this is a muscle car. He said to me, Well, you know I bought it, no, it wasn't a muscle car, yeah but yeah, he loved cars. He didn't talk about science fiction, no, huh, and he <laughs> had this kind of like secondhand Porsche, yeah, and he said, I'm gonna take you on a ride around the campus, Wow, man, fascinating, yeah, so really cool so uh
1: so you then graduated u s c okay. And then what happened? Like, how did you kind of make your debut into the directing world? Well,
0: while I was still a teenager, I met Harold Lloyd. Okay. Who had been in business with my dad in 1940. They started a radio station called KMPC. Okay. And so Lloyd, you know, I didn't know too much about him because his films had been vaulted for so many years. And I was able to see some of his films in the early 60s, and I just loved them. So I met Harold Lloyd. This guy was one of the nicest people in the world. And so, what happened was, I started taking care of his nitrate film collection and getting everything transferred from nitrate to safety film. Now, nitrate 35 millimeters is what they made all the old movies on, but that's a really volatile stock that shrinks, it deteriorates, and it also is really flammable. Mm-hmm. So, you want to save all of that stuff. Sure. So, um, I started working for him and I got, I was, I, that, allowed me to become hands-on with 35 millimeter film okay. so i knew about printers and projectors and soundtracks and emulsion types negatives positives all that stuff you're getting real world experience even before you said i got on the job experience yeah. being really lucky to have worked for harold lloyd and because, yeah. but first of all we were preserving a very very important american film collection mm-hmm. and second of all it gave me all of this hands-on experience with labs and film and everything yeah. so when i got out of college The first thing I did was I went back to work at the Lloyd Estate because Harold died just about the time I was graduating. But then I went to Time Life Films because Time Life Films had bought his catalog. I see. And I started doing more editing and dubbing and all this stuff. So I had a really good 35 post-production background. Mm. And from there, I got a job with a guy named Nick Vanoff. Nick Vanoff had a company out of Beverly Hills, and he produced The Sonny and Cher Show, The Hollywood Palace, and Hee Haw. Yeah, huh. So that was interesting. Hee Haw was shot in Nashville, but it was posted in L.A. The Sonny and Cher show was really interesting. That was down at CBS. From there, I went to 20th Century Fox and worked on a show called That's Hollywood, which was produced by the guy that made That's Entertainment, Jack Haley Jr. And again, it was about being an archivist, film history, putting together clips of shows. And from there... A friend of mine who I knew really well had been overworking with Gary Marshall as a music coordinator at Paramount on Gary shows, and they were moving him up to become the associate producer of Mork & Mindy. And he just called me and said, do you want to come to Paramount and do this job as a music coordinator? No, yeah, for Gary Marshall. Uh. And I said, are you kidding? (laughs) I was like in the right place at the right time. So I went over to Paramount. I started working as a music coordinator. They started to realize Gary Marshall and his family who ran? I mean, they had the Odd Couple, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Mark and Mindy. I mean, they were hot, hot, yeah, like white hot. Sure, they began to realize that I was a guy with a post experience, and in those days, everything was shot on film and posted on film. Huh. Everything was all thirty-five millimeter. And a, a woman named Ronnie Hallen, that Ronnie Hallen Marshall, that's Gary's older sister, not Penny. Okay, she took a liking to me and said. You know, we want you to go down and dub a couple of the shows. I've been there for like six months doing this music coordinating thing because I was I, I play guitar and drums and, ah, you know, I have a musical background. But they said, go down and dub some of these shows because we're looking for someone to fill in, take over as associate producer of Laverne and Shirley. Now, Laverne and Shirley was the number two show in the country. I remember it. It yeah. was like, really? So, again, they liked my work. Ronnie Hallen advanced me. I became associate producer of Laverne and Shirley. That led to becoming associate producer and then kind of like the line producer of Happy Days. I met a guy named Fred Fox Jr., who was one of the writers. Yeah. He and I started writing together. I wrote a number of Happy Day shows. I ended up being one of the writers up at the tables. Huh. So, And I worked for Gary for like seven and a half years. I mean, Robin Williams used to come in. I had a, but my first office at Paramount, I swear to God, this is true. Okay. It was like a broom closet. Every they, story he tells is like, it gets just so much better. <laughs> and Robin Williams, when he uh-huh. was just starting, I mean, yeah. not even a lot of people know who he was, used to come up. He, I think he felt sorry for me. I was in this closet. I had a desk <laughs> and to get to the desk, he had to kind of climb over stuff. But I had all of these photographs of vintage comedians that had worked at Paramount. Yeah. And used to come in and sit down, and just hang out, talk to me about the the guys on the wall and you know, the Ames and Andy radio and TV shows sure. and all this stuff. He was, Robin was the best. He was so sweet. Oh yeah. Great guy. Mm. So again, that was just totally lucky. And so from there I started producing. I stayed with Gary for seven years. And then one of his partners was a guy named Tom Miller. It was Miller Milkus uh, Marshall who did the happy day shows and all that. And Tom Miller formed a partnership with a guy named Bob Boyette. It was Miller Boyette, Miller Boyette, Left Paramount, went to Lorimar. They took me with them as like a line producer. The first show we ever did was called Valerie, which was the Valerie Harper show, which became the Hogan Family. And while we were doing the Hogan Family, which I was producing, um, they asked me there was an opening for a director, and they said, "Do you want to direct?" I mean, I knew the ins and outs of it. I said, "Sure." I've been an actor. Yeah. Yeah. So I started directing, and then for a number of years, I was directing and producing. That was really fun. And then that became exclusively directing. And then, you know, I I had... I had a party for my 500th episode, and then I've directed a party for my 700th episode. Oh my god! So I've done 719 episodes.
1: Do you remember the first time you got asked to be the director? Like, was that stressful? It's like you—you are the now the man, right? Well, I mean,
0: there's a—it's there. See, the thing that was really lucky, Jason, is the shows that I started directing had been shows that I was producing.
1: Oh, for. so you already had? Well, I the
0: cast—if the cast liked you and everybody, most of those people were really friendly. Yeah. You know, Valerie Harper was great. Sandy Duncan was great. Jason Bateman was great. They were all great. They were yeah. really nice people. If they like you and you're coming in to do their show, everybody wants you to do well. Sure, so sure, So you sure. find that most of these people are on their best behavior. They didn't, I got it. No one was copying attitudes and all this other stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so we just had a great time and, and it went well. I do lots of homework. I'm really prepped. Of course. Gary yeah. appreciated that. Tom and Bob appreciated that. The studio appreciated that. Yeah. So, right. you know, I was. Um,
1: and so did the audience that was watching it. And right? I, loved, yeah. I
0: did so many live, like in front of audience shows. That was so much fun. Did you? To do these live shows. Oh, yeah. It's a blast. Uh-huh. And the sitcoms we did, a lot of people think a lot of that's canned laughter. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. No, 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 no. We did a lot of stuff that was like really. As a matter of fact, in the case of Fonzie, when Henry was hot, and there was a time when he was the number one star on on television, right? yeah, 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 he'd come in to the scene, like walk into Arnold's. Mm-hmm. People would give him an ovation that was so long, we would have to cut half of it. Uh-huh. So it's not only that were we not using canned stuff; yeah. we actually were cutting it's, it's some because- of the stuff that was real.
1: So my happy day story is: so uh, my son goes to school, and one day um, he's hanging out with a girl, um, and uh, I get a knock on the door. And um, a woman shows up at my door and she's like, hey, how are you? I hear your son's an actor. I'm here to pick up my daughter, Roxy. I'm like, oh, cool, well, nice to meet you. She's like, yeah, I, I used to be an actress too. I'm like, really, what were you in? She said, happy days. I'm like, happy days? Really? She's like, have you heard of it? I'm like, who hasn't heard of Happy Days? Yeah. So it turns out that she was Jenny Piccolo, Kathy Silvers.
0: Oh, Kathy Silvers was yes. awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. I saw her every single day. Did you? Well, yeah. Of course, I loved her dad. Phil Silvers. Yeah. Oh my right? gosh. I uh-huh. mean, the best. But Kathy was always super nice. Yeah. I liked her a lot. That's, so that was uh, that was really
1: uh, fun. But um, yeah, just you never know when Happy Days stars are going to knock on your door, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Only in, in L.A. So you've got so many different uh, you know, shows that you've participated in. Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Full House, Family Matters. Um, what did you work on in the 80s? What were some of the other shows? You got Family Matters, Married with Children? Was that one of them?
0: Yeah. The, yeah. You know, I did Married with Children. Um, I did Reba okay. Yes Dear. Um I, I mean, I was I would go from sitcom to sitcom to sitcom. Yeah. And yeah, even most, some mostly family programming. Okay. Mostly stuff that family like the T G A F yep. block. Uh-huh. that they created in the early nineties. Yeah. I was like ABC's most prolific director of those shows. I see. I, I, I did a thing once where I had, I was one of the only directors in the history of the director's guild that had three shows on same night, same network back to back. Wow. Yeah. Which was a fluke uh-huh. again, lucky. Yeah. yeah. But that was cool. Okay. So, I mean, I was always in production doing all this stuff and I just, you know, I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. I mean, I worked hard, but I worked for really nice people. Sure. Especially people who would advance you if you did good work.
1: Yeah, of course. So, I mean,
0: that was really important.
1: Well, it's funny because, like, you directed shows that my parents watched. Mm -hmm. You've directed shows that I've watched. And then you've even directed shows that my kids watch.
0: right? Right? I don't wanna tell you how many years I've been <laughs> years. that's the problem is people go, wait, 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 wait. How long ago did you start doing this?
1: That's a Raven, Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, Hannah Montana, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so uh, so Hannah Montana. So you worked with Miley?
0: Yeah. Well, I created, I was the co-creator of Hannah
1: Montana. Oh, is that right? Yeah.
0: Huh. That was my show, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I worked with Miley and uh Miley's still like a completely sweet. Really nice person. All the stuff about Miley in the last 10 years where like people thought, oh, she's losing her mind or she's doing all the working or she's doing this or Uh she's what's the matter with her. And she's, no, it's all calculated. It is. Because she did an extremely smart thing, which was she was, you know, Disney's biggest star, which has an up and, and a big downside to it. Yeah. And as soon as she got released from the show, she decided to get out from under the Disney thumb. Yeah. And so she did all of these things that were opposite anything Hannah Montana was do, Interesting. There. And it worked. Yeah. But Miley is a sweetheart. If you saw her or she was walking by, I'd say, Miley, come on in. She'd sit and hang with us. Is that right? Oh, she's a sweetheart. And huh. her dad, yeah. Billy Ray, yeah. he's the nicest guy. The only time I was ever late to be on stage when I was supposed to be back from lunch is because he kind of cornered me. Took me and put me in his car and played his new album for me, and I just couldn't. Is he said, right? "No, no, you can't. wait. You have to hear the next song, but only because he was a super nice guy." Huh? Billy is a super, super nice guy. So, was that show written for Miley, or did you cast for that? No, it wasn't written for Miley. It wasn't. No, the idea of Hannah Montana was a, a young girl who's kind of this unbelievably huge rock star kind of by night yeah, and by day, a high school student and nobody knew her identity. Yeah, So it was the, you know, the the epitome of the high school girls' fantasy. That's how the movie, that's how the show was sold. Interesting. And so we didn't, there was, you know, I wasn't involved in the early casting of it so much, but they looked at 300 girls. Emily Osmet, who ended up playing Lily, actually was the forerunner, but they couldn't find a, a person to play Hannah. And what happened was, they had the Sprouse twins, Dylan and Cole Sprouse, who were Zach and Cody, and a and a pair of a, a group of triplet girls under contract. And Disney, I don't want to say nasty things about Disney, but they're a company that's not going to spend one dime unless they get something for it. I see. And the the year of the pilot of Hannah Montana, they shelved the pilot, and they did a pilot called Triple Play with the three girls, and they did Sweet Life of Zach and Cody, and that's the one that sold. But when they shelved the pilot, it was for two reasons. They had other kids under contract that they had to use, mm-hmm. and they couldn't find the girl. They looked and looked and looked and couldn't find the girl. Miley came in and read. She was like 12 years old, very scrawny, not a great actress, pretty good singer. Yeah. But it was like, okay, somebody else, let's see, let's see some more people. And we thought that's the end of that. Yeah. You know, we had written the pilot, the first and second draft of it, I and a guy named Barry O'Brien. Okay. Uh, and Barry I knew from the Miller Boyette days. But we thought, okay, well, that's the end of it. And then it came back a year later. And they said, we're going to do it. We're still going to do Hannah Montana. And then they went looking for people again. And Miley came in again. She was more mature. She looked a little better. Her so accent a couple pretty, years later now. Yeah. Huh? But the thing is, one of the strange things that happened was just on a whim, Billy Ray came in and read with her as her father. And she was more comfortable and seemed at ease. And everyone said, why don't we just hire him? So much chemistry. Not only that, <laughs> hire him as the father because we'll get the country Western people yeah. to watch. Uh-huh. So he was as much of it as she was. Of course. And then, it, you know, she needed some help with acting and she, but she was really appealing. The reason that Hannah Montana took off is because Miley took off. Oh, yeah. I mean, Period. Perfect person to cast for that. Yeah, role. I mean, it's like Happy Days. I mean, mm-hmm. Happy Days was a monster, monster hit because Henry was Fonzie. He was, you know, yeah. And Morgan Mindy, Morgan Mindy had been on the air for three shows, and it was the number one show in the country. In and no pilot, they always made pilots of things. Is that but, right? But Robin had been on Happy Days, and they saw him on Happy Days. He literally took over, uh-huh. and just and one
1: episode, and that's it. Who is episode, this guy? So they right? made
0: no pilot, but yeah. that show became number one in three weeks. And that's, and Mork was because of Robin, Happy Days was because of Henry and Ma- Hannah Montana was because of Miley. Huh. Say, so I saw it happen at least three times. Oh, and Family Matters, which was on the verge of being canceled. It was it was show number 13, yeah. Unlucky 13, where Urkel showed up as a day player. Huh. And we I was directing that show and I went to the producers and said, this kid's really funny. You hired him. Obviously, you know that. But why don't we turn him into the, like a physical wreck? Every place he goes, he breaks things and wrecks <laughs> things. And they said to me, okay, well, the first scene he's in, it's a cafeteria. And I went, that's all I want to know. So what, that was just on a this. limb. That was just on a limb. And I went to him. I went to Jaleel White, who was 13. And I said, we're going to turn you into a 13-year-old Jerry Lewis. And he went, who? He had no idea who I was talking about. So that was the... You know, Family Matters was because of Urkel. Yeah, and the funny thing is, Full House had a cast that everybody knew. Uh huh. The girls loved Stamos. They thought Coulier and Saget were really, really funny. Yeah. But it was it was the Olsen twins, the twins, yeah, that got the high ratings because kids tuned in to see what Baby That's Michelle right. was doing.
1: Yeah, that so was in, the audience. In yep. the case
0: of those being there for those shows, I was standing next to Jeff Franklin, Bob Boyette, when they cast Full House. They cast the kids. They brought in five sets of twin girls. They always had to have twins Mm -hmm. because when you had a little baby, can only be on set so long, right? No, well, Mm -hmm. if one goes down and it's crying, or they bring the other one in. I see. So there's always twins. Yeah, they put five sets of twins out in front of Bob Boyette and he literally looked at these kids. One of them was asleep. Mary Kate Olsen was asleep Uh in her little chair. Yeah, they were only like ten months old. Sure, and he went. Uh, let's see, I'll take uh, and his finger was going back, he went, uh, them, and it's just it was the hand of God. It was like, (laughs) and now they're billionaires. I mean, there were who knew? I mean, it
1: was just completely lucky. It's so interesting how there's a little bit of uh, luck that's played into this. There's a lot of talent, a lot of luck. There's a lot of talent, don't get me wrong, but there's also a whole lot of luck being at the right place. Everything's about luck, yeah. In you know, at the right place at the right time in front of the right
0: people, right? And that goes for everybody on the stage. Yeah. Not just the actors. Everybody's gotta be in the right place at the right time. So my, uh, my son uh, came out
1: here. We moved out here so he can try to pursue this acting thing too. Um, and, uh, you know, my son, I wanted to help him pursue his young dreams, right? And so we moved out here um, and, you know, he hasn't really landed any breakout roles, right? But he continues to show up. But nowadays, like you said, um, uh, you know, he's competing against like kids that have 10 million followers on Instagram, on social media. And a lot of times they're getting cast just so that you can bring the audience. From yeah, that's a whole right? different factor.
0: When Nowadays, I was a kid right? and, and even directing stuff, up, that wasn't, that was non-existent. No, huh. Yeah, people yeah. are looking at stuff like that all the time. But I mean, the thing to tell him is you got to have thick skin in Hollywood. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. You can't
0: take rejection personally. No. Because mm-hmm. it just isn't, I mean, from the beginning of the movie and TV business, you just can't take rejection personally.
1: That's it. You
0: might be too big, too tall, too skinny, yep. too, you know, funny looking, too handsome. But it might be whatever. the perfect person. Or the perfect person. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So tell him, keep at it, but don't get discouraged. Just have thick skin. And he's still
1: 17. So he's competing with 22 year olds that are playing 17 year olds. Yeah, right? but so. tell him
0: the 17's a great age. Is it? Man, when you're 17... Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. You should have, uh, you know, a lot of gumption and uh, yeah. a lot of fight and just tell him not to, 17's the best. And he's
1: compete like he's auditioned, got far with Stranger Things, like shows that are big hits, but just never got a no, big no, no, break No, 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 Tell him yeah. not to give
0: up. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If he's 17 years old, he's got a long ways to go, but he'll be fine.
1: Okay. Is yeah. he a good actor? Yes, yeah. and tell him to
0: keep at it and not to worry about it.
1: That's life in general, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you
0: know, seventeen years old, you got your whole life in front of you. So
1: you sure just do. have thick
0: skin because you're in Hollywood. And he's into
1: all this stuff. You need to meet him. I want him to well, see you bring some him of your by memorabilia. Bring him by the exhibit. I would love to do He'd that. Freak if he saw it. No, he totally would. Yeah, so cool. Well, this is this is awesome. So we do this thing. It's called Hennessy Heart to Heart where we just ask a couple questions and just kind of get your your immediate response on some of these questions. A
0: couple of questions, okay.
1: Yeah, simple, right? Okay. So, are you consider yourself a pessimist or an optimist? Optimist.
0: Got it. If you can pick a new
1: golden rule, what would
0: that be? Um always have an understanding heart.
2: Okay.
1: What how have your values changed from 10 years ago?
0: More sympathetic towards older people.
1: Interesting. What do you
0: think your greatest childhood memory is? Christmas time with my whole family. Okay. Worst childhood memory? I had a brother that died when he was a kid. That was terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, Biggest fear as a child? Needles. Okay. Still same. <laughs> yeah. Didn't huh? change. I don't like blood tests and needles <laughs> and shots. And, and of course, in today's world, everything's injected, you know, I'm vaccinated and, I, you know, I don't look forward to that.
1: Yeah. No, I never liked it. Uh, favorite uh,
0: subject in, in school? Um, I think in grammar school, it was probably English because I always loved to read. And then in high school, it was speech and geometry. I loved geometry. I'm not a math guy. Yeah. I, I mean, algebra and all that, no good. But I loved geometry. And I think geometry had a lot to do with camera blocking Okay, when you're a sitcom director. But I love geometry and I love speech. I love getting up and talking. I'm afraid of needles, but not afraid of talking. Of
1: <laughs> Go figure, right?
0: Mm. What do you admire most about your parents? Uh, my father was one of the biggest stars in the world and one of the most humble people I ever met. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was fantastic. Mom? My mom was, her M.O. was trying to get the things for her family and her kids that she didn't have because she grew up poor and ended up like Cinderella. Interesting. She married this guy to put her in this big house and took care of her and she Ah. wanted to take advantage of that for her kids. So she was always looking out for her kids. Okay. Uh, What are you most proud of? Um, I'm proud of my kids. I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of the fact that my hobby is part of the preservation of an aspect of Hollywood. Yeah. I'm proud that I was able to, you know, make it in Hollywood without the help of nepotism or family. Mm-hmm. I mean, my father was entrenched in show business, but he was gone long before my brother and I got into show business. And I think we kind of made it without, which is by just working our way up without okay. having been helped by family and friends and stuff.
1: As far as like celebrities dead or alive, who inspired you the most?
0: Well, my dad inspired me the most. Mm -hmm. Harold Lloyd really inspired me. Stan Laurel, who was a friend of mine. I loved Laurel and Hardy and I borrowed some stuff from them all the time doing shows. Hmm. So I love Stan. I love Harold. I love my dad. Um, And then I loved Michael Curtiz, the director, the guy who directed Adventures of Robin Hood and Seahawk and Casablanca. He was my favorite director.
1: Okay. If I would ask my son that question, he would immediately say Walt Disney, for sure. Yeah, that's well, I loved Walt Disney. Yeah. No, I mean, Walt
0: Disney, the greatest thing about Walt Disney is he was a kid. Yeah. And he listened to kids. Uh-huh. If you went to a party and he was at your house or something, your parents would go, now don't bother Mr. Disney, don't bother him. Mm-hmm. But he'd say, okay, so... Uh, what do you guys talk about in school? And what do you like? And yeah. about, what do you watch? And what? You, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause he, that's how he made his living and he knew it and he never backed away from that
1: market research.
0: Totally, <laughs> totally great guy and really smart
1: about that. <laughs> when, if ever, is it okay to break the law? That's a tough question.
0: Is it okay? Well, I guess it depends on what law it is. <laughs> it depends on what law it is. When is it okay to break the law? I don't know. <laughs> I don't break the law very often so I'm not sure I don't know that's one. I that's I'm a not tough sure. question right it is yeah it, again it depends I would on what say, law
1: I would say if your uh, wife is having a baby and you're heading to the hospital go past those stops oh I've done that
0: yeah <laughs> yeah it was okay to break that law yeah that right? was fine yeah. that'd
1: be my answer oh that's a good one right yeah uh, what was the best birthday you celebrated
0: when is your birthday In May 14 okay Um, the best, you know what? That's a tough one to answer because I love birthdays and there's been a lot of them that have really, really been fun. Yeah. For my 65th birthday, we rented the entire bottom floor of the Hollywood Roosevelt hotel. Okay. I put together a band Uh of my wife, her sisters that are like a choir, the best singers ever. Uh, my brother-in-law played drums. I got a couple other studio guys. We put up a band and we played this big show. And we did it at the Roosevelt and we had like 500 people and it was just this huge barn burner. Huh. That was really cool. That, that was a really good awesome. one. But you know what? I love birthdays as a kid. Yeah, right? Birthdays as a kid. A lot of stuff I did as a kid was really cool. M- more magical, right? Yeah. yeah, I just loved that. I mean, I'm still a kid. so I, 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 I can tell. Yeah. Like, I seriously yeah, 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 see yeah. that so I loved you. all So I loved all that old stuff. Uh-huh. What was the best concert you've ever attended? The first one I ever went to in my whole life. It was the best I ever went to, which was Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, 1964. Wow. That was Beatle year. Uh-huh. So they were the biggest stars on earth. Sure. And they were at the Hollywood Bowl, which was one of their most famous concerts ever. And by accident, somebody gave me a ticket and i would sit up in the boxes to go to see the Beatles. How cool is And that? I just like, it was just, it was so historic and so cool. You live a fairytale life, I my do. friend. I do. It was really cool. It was really cool. Here's one.
1: What's one of your most unusual talents that people don't know about you?
0: That they don't know about? Yeah.
1: Like, like I just learned that you're a musician, too. Like,
0: what what are some other talents? What are one of my most unusual talents? Can you juggle? yeah? I can't juggle. (laughs) I was a really good Sandlot football player. Okay. Very, very fast. I ran track in high school and I did the 120 low hurdles, the 100-yard dash, the 70 high hurdles, and I was a pole vaulter. I was okay. a good pole vaulter, so that's a that's a that's a, an ability a lot of people don't know about. Uh-huh. But in high school, I, I was a big track guy, but pole vaulting was cool. Cool, yeah. I was always a gymnast. I loved doing gymnastics, so pole vaulting was like doing gymnastics. So got I was it. always into that. Yeah. What's the
1: scariest movie you ever seen? Uh this is right in your wheelhouse here. Now you got to be careful about which one you. Uh, well,
0: I'm the sure. Universal movies. Made meant a lot to me and influenced me a lot, but I didn't ever think they were scary. Mm-hmm. I just thought they were really cool. They really scared audiences in the 30s, sure. really scared them. And so I can watch an old movie and kind of assimilate into being an audience in the 30s so I understand why the lights in Bela Lugosi's eyes scared everybody. You know I, mean? yeah. I didn't think they were scary. I thought The Exorcist was really scary um, because I've never seen a movie affect an audience like that. And the funny thing about it is a friend of mine who ran the film program at the Academy mm-hmm. of, of Motion Picture Arts and Science invited me to a screening of it on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I had a complete industry audience, which is never affected by anything. And that movie like picked up that audience and dropped it on its head. And it was like, every time there'd be this huge, loud, violent, scary thing, it would cut to something quiet and everybody would talk and murmur. You'd hear the whole audience. Hmm. So that was great. And also John Lennon came in and sat in front of me. Yeah, that was cool. That wasn't scary. That was just cool. (laughs) Um, That I think that's probably the scariest movie. But I thought Silence of the Lambs was scary, sure, because because of the subject matter. Oh yeah, yeah, I thought that was really scary. Oh, you know, James Wan's made some great scary movies. Insidious is the scary, the conjuring scary. He made a great movie called Dead Silence that nobody went to uh-huh. about a woman, an old lady that makes ventriloquist dummies. Huh. That's a really scary movie. I'll have to watch that one. I haven't yeah. Seen that one. Yeah. I, I thought I, that's, you know, James, I think the James Wan movies are scary these days.
1: The so one that comes to mind as a kid, I would have nightmares about it uh, like every night. Uh, I don't know why I seen this or if it was just on was Children of the Corn as a kid. Really? Yeah. Malachi, I think was the kid's name, yeah. right? And I don't know, just as a kid, kind of seeing this cornfield with these kids that kind of did bad and evil things. That was <laughs> but just you like- see,
0: what's funny is for me, like for instance, there's two movies made in the very early 60s, both in cinema scope, both in black and white. Yeah. One's called The Haunting. Okay. This was the one that Robert Wise made with Julie Harrison. Yeah. That was really scary when I saw it in a the theater when it was released, everybody screamed and everything, you know, but that's a very cool psychological ghost story because you don't really see yeah. ghosts. You just hear things. Uh-huh. That's the one with all the pounding on the wall. Yeah. And then there's this fantastic British film made by a guy named Jack Clayton with Deborah Kerr in it called The Innocence. Okay, And The Innocence is the, is a film adaption of Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And there's a thing where she thinks these two kids living in this big manor way out in the middle of the country are possessed. By two people who had lived there and died. And Deborah Kerr is sitting in a gazebo in the sunlight with this little kid who's this little girl who's on the bank kind of humming this really weird tune. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly she hears like two voices Mm. and she looks up and across this lake in the reeds is this woman in black just standing there staring at them. Hmm. That's really scary. Of course. I mean, really scary. Yeah. That gives me goosebumps thinking about it. (laughs) But if I say to people, oh, the innocence is really scary. They kind of go, eh, it's this old clinker in black and white. And, you know, who cares? And where's the guys jumping out of the closet with knives? Yeah. Uh So what scares me is a whole different
1: thing. Got it. The other one too, I so I grew up on Long Island and the big one out there, I literally grew up five minutes away from the Amityville Horror House. The, oh, well, yeah. The real house. Well,
0: that book was really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the first movie, the first version of it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so. thought that was fun. It was too bad that it turned out to be a hoax. Yeah, I know. What would
1: you rather do? Uh, go back a hundred years or hop into a time machine and go ahead
0: a hundred oh, years? absolutely. No questions asked. Go back. You want to go back? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah why i'm so interested in history i'm so interested in the people that made the history um that time period being 1920 yeah 21 22 i know a lot about that time and i just think uh the glamour of the city what was going on was being built the people doing it i just think it's fantastic i'm not afraid of the future but i just think the past is so cool
1: be cool to see like your your dad and mom too. Oh in man! Time frame, right? Yeah, go meet you
0: go shake hands with Errol Flynn and yeah, you know. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So That'd cool. be great.
1: Yeah. Oh, if you can jump into any movie and live in that movie
0: for thirty days, what would it be? Uh, King Kong. King Kong. Yeah. Huh. I want to live on the island and see all the dinosaurs and see the giant monkey.
1: I think Christmas time of year, I'd like to jump into the Christmas story and kind of be in that movie for a, a, a little bit.
0: <laughs> the one with the with the kids? With yeah, the,
1: Bill, Bill and Julie. What's his name? Uh, uh, with the lamp. The yeah, leg yeah, lamp yeah, yeah, for yeah, Julie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that would be cool. Well, thank you for for sharing all these great stories. I would want to go back fifty years just to kind of be your best friend
0: and kind of <laughs> hang out with you, man. Like <laughs> I had a great time. I had a lot of fun. I've, again, I've been very, very, very lucky. really lucky. So if those of that are
1: listening want to come and see all of your pieces here and history, Um, what is the name of, uh, well, there will be eventually the hall of fame, right? Yeah. That's
0: going to be next to the Chinese theater right now. We're right down the street from the Chinese at a place called icons of darkness. Okay, cool. And it's right next to Foot Locker on the corner of Hollywood and Highland. Yeah. uh We're on the, uh, we're on the Northwest corner. Yeah. Which is like the heart of Hollywood. Right. Yes. If you want to see some of the stuff I collected. Come on down and you won't be disappointed. Trust me. I'm going to take my family. We're going to go oh, check it out. Oh, you're going to freak. For sure. Just the dinosaurs are worth coming to see.
1: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. We will do that. Well, again, Rich, thank you so much for coming today. I. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I love doing it. This has been the Jason Hennessy Podcast. This show is produced by Whitney Welsh and Jenna Kershaw, engineered and edited by Josh Fisher and recorded at Hennessy Studios. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.